what does all this new evidence do to some of our most entrenched, ingrained ideas about what our species is, what our capacities are as a species, and how looking at the past changes our understanding of those kinds of questions. Maybe the dawn of everything has, has walked into some of that void. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, a new history of humanity. I want to tell you a story. Once upon a time, we were hunter-gatherers living with childlike innocence in tiny egalitarian bands. But then came the agricultural revolution, the rise of cities, and the end of our happy, carefree existence. It's a story you've probably heard if you've read books like Guns, Germs, and Steel or Sapiens. I've also told it a few times on this podcast, and my producer, Caleb, is here to remind me of those times. Okay, Rufus. Here you are, last April, talking to Amanda Little about her book, The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. I'm sure you're aware of the growing camp that thinks about the dawn of farming as a Faustian bargain. And here you are again in July when you spoke to Edward Slingerland about his book, Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. I mean, I think I think a lot of us would agree that I think there's more and more prevalent view that farming was a Faustian bargain and had a negative impact on most human experience for many thousands of years. <laughs> and here you are again this fall when you sat down with Devin Price to talk about their book, Laziness Does Not Exist. From the perspective of the hunter-gatherers, they lived in, a, in an environment that was like a a Whole Foods marketplace of wonderful nutrition, and they enjoyed each other's company, so why would they do unnecessary labor? I guess one possible explanation could be that the emergence of farming itself was this Faustian bargain. Oof. All right, Caleb, point <laughs> made. This has been a running joke. You love to tease me about my farming was a Faustian bargain obsession. And you know what? As it turns out, I was wrong. Those are three words I can't say to my wife, Caleb, but I can say them to you <laughs> because we've learned that story simply isn't true. It is not. Will you read that quote I sent you? Sure. It is clear now that human societies before the advent of farming were not confined to small egalitarian bands. On the contrary, the world of hunter-gatherers, as it existed before the coming of agriculture, was one of bold social experiments, resembling a carnival parade of political forms. It's revolutionary, isn't it? Because it suggests that what a lot of us have come to take for granted, that our hunter-gatherer ancestors were these happy egalitarians, and then farming plunged them into darkness, this story simply isn't true. No, and, and this quote keeps going. Agriculture, in turn, did not mark an irreversible step towards inequality. In fact, many of the first farming communities were relatively free of ranks and hierarchies. And far from setting class differences in stone, a surprising number of the world's earliest cities were organized on robustly egalitarian lines. Amazing and unexpected. 
Yes. And also uh, unexpected how okay you are with being proven wrong. <laughs> Why, thank you. I totally bought into the prevailing mythology around the origins of our species. In my defense, my enthusiasm for it was in part because it replaced our previous erroneous creation myth that farming was this brilliant technological innovation, a great step forward for humanity. This is the story I grew up with that made possible art and literature, idyllic family farms, hayrides, a better quality of life. I think we should share, Caleb, where these passages come from. Yeah, so they're from a book that we have spent a lot of time talking about for the last few weeks. It's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, and it's by David Graeber and David Wengro. David Graeber is a name I think some of our listeners may recognize, a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics, organizer of Occupy Wall Street, the man who coined the phrase, we are the 99%, and came up with the idea of bullshit jobs. Tragically, he died in September 2020, weeks after finishing The Dawn of Everything. Luckily, though, his co-author, David Wengro, a professor of archaeology at University College London, is still with us. And he's my guest on the show today. Caleb, I'd like to read you something from their book. Okay. If humans did not spend 95% of their evolutionary past in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers, what were they doing all that time? If agriculture and cities did not mean a plunge into hierarchy and domination, then what did they imply? The answers suggest that the course of human history may be less set in stone and more full of playful possibilities than we tend to assume. I like the sound of that, Caleb. I do too, and I think as much as we enjoy reading aloud to each other, it's that idea, right, that human history is not set in stone, but is instead full of playful possibilities that I think is the real reason you wanted me to join you on mic today, because you spoke with David last week, and ever since we've been slacking and texting and talking about how that interview really tied together a lot of the themes that have been percolating through this season of the podcast. Exactly. It dawned on me as I read The Dawn of Everything that if this podcast is about anything, it's about those playful possibilities. It's about trying to understand why modern life is as it is, where we've come from, and what alternative options, this is important, and what alternative options are available. That's part of what I think is so exciting about The Dawn of Everything. And this may explain how a 700-page book landed at number two on the New York Times bestseller list and has become in recent weeks maybe the most talked about book in recent years. Not only does it marshal a tremendous amount of evidence from all over the ancient world to disprove the mythical version of human history, it shows us that that history is not linear. Our modern economies, social systems, forms of government, they're not inevitable. Which is why I was so delighted to talk with David Wengro about public housing in the third century AD, the indigenous critique of the Enlightenment, and why Hollywood needs to get cracking on a biopic about the great Huron chief, Candy Rock. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. David Wengro, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Very good to be here. Well, first of all, 
Congratulations. What what an exciting moment. You spent a decade, I believe, researching and writing this book with your co-author, the late David Graeber. You knew that this was an ambitious project, one that might make waves. Are you surprised by the size of the waves generated? I think it came in at number two on the New York Times bestseller list at the time of launch, hailed by critics as extraordinary and instant classic and potentially revolutionary. Uh, I think I think Graeber's reported to have said this book is going to mess things up, and indeed it has. How, how does that feel? Um, it's very, very hard to describe because it was never obviously part of the plan that David wouldn't be around when this book came out. And for me personally, everything is colored by that. So while it's overwhelming and, and an amazing tribute to him to see the response to the book, it's all very recent. And I think it's going to take a while for me to digest what's happened. Um, and in the meantime, the book rolls on. And I think it, it, it stands on its own two feet. I defend it from time to time when I feel it's being unjustly attacked. But for the most part, what I'm seeing is people from all walks of life, uh, the book's crossing lines. You know, it's, it's, I see artists discussing it, scientists discussing it. My barber uh, in North London is discussing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and, and young people, I see a lot of young people um, talking about the book. And that, that really warms my, my heart and, and confirms my sense that, that really working with David Graeber was the great good luck and the great fortune of, of my career. And it, if, if the book uh, reflects that in some way, that's, that's good enough for me. Well, it, it's tragic that David wasn't able to see the mess you two made with this book yeah. <laughs> for himself. That, that yeah. would have been a great party. And it's, it's always, um, it was something he was really looking forward to. And it, it, it is a shame he can't see it. But it's, it's wonderful for the rest of us that he was able to complete with you this, this wonderful book. You know, something we've noticed in the last few years is that many of our favorite new books have been written by pairs of people. Uh -huh. um, you've written that human thought is inherently dialogic. Humans were only fully self-conscious when arguing with one another, trying to sway <laughs> each other's views, trying mm -hmm. to work out a common problem. Uh, I, I'm guessing you experienced this with David Graeber. What were your dialogues like? And were there holes in your thinking that he exposed and, and vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th this is really how the whole thing got started. And, and he was a very generous person. Not all academics you meet are very generous, but he really was. And every time we used to meet up, whether it was in, in the US or, or in, in the UK, he, he'd always say, at least for the first few years, he'd say, well, every time we talk, David, I learn something new. And it was totally reciprocal. And, and mm. exactly as you say, you know, filling gaps, filling holes in, in one another's knowledge, and also asking different questions of, of each other's work than we ever would have come up with 
by ourselves. So the whole thing, as you say, is totally dialogical. And it does link into that broader point that, that David often made. He, he was very steeped in, in philosophy, actually, and I have a longstanding interest in, in psychology. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a huge amount of, of work on this, uh, about the fact that we are actually on mentally on autopilot uh, most mm -hmm. of the time. Yep. And those fleeting moments when you can really home in and focus clearly on a problem or a concept are very hard to sustain. Uh, it takes a huge amount of, of self-discipline. But when you're in conversation, the, those windows uh, of the mind, uh, they, they just you can prise them open and keep them open that bit longer. You know, that is extraordinary, the, the, the observation in, in the book that it, it's an accomplishment for us to focus for maybe seven minutes at a time individually. But when engaged in conversation, we can go for hours. <laughs> yeah, I think it may even be more a matter of, of, of seconds if you believe some, some evolutionary psychologists. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, that's, that's right. Well, it's wonderful when, when books can spark dialogue and, and discussion across communities and countries and, and the world. And it must be gratifying to watch The Dawn of Everything become one of those books that does so. And in my own life, and I think I imagine for many listeners, the first book that really sort of I felt compelled to discuss with other people was Guns, Germs, and Steel, mm -hmm. published in 1997, 25 years ago. It's It sold a million copies, which at the time was just an enormous number. It mm -hmm. still is. And, and, and I think to some degree of the dawn of everything, as part of this sequence of big stories about uh, our, our origin story, then Sapiens came out 10 years ago, 2011, it, it it sold over twelve million copies, which is which is just stunning. Did it really? Yeah, which to me is kind of hopeful, <laughs> right? I mean, that's <laughs> that that uh, that people uh, have such a deep desire to understand where we've come from, and so many readers are willing to engage with with pretty serious and heavy subject matter. Mm. Um, now your book comes along, the size and weight of an anvil. 700 pages long, <laughs> nearly 200 pages of endnotes, and it's flying off the shelves. How do you explain it? Do you think it's about this need we have for origin stories, or, or maybe we're orphans trying to figure out where we came from? Well, not meaning to be flippant, but it may be the end notes. I remember David telling me once, and of course he'd, he'd been around this block uh, before with books like Debt. And one thing he'd learned from that experience is that people love endnotes. <laughs> Who knew? Academics don't like endnotes very much, but people generally seem to, to like them. Um, but I, 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 um, I can't explain it other than by maybe just reflecting a bit on the fact that from my own field of archaeology, which after all is, is, you know, that is the primary field if you're interested in 95% mm -hmm. of human history. Um, mm. If you're interested in the evidence as opposed to, to just philosophical speculations of one kind or another, archaeology is it's the go-to subject. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, people in my field, it's not that they've stopped writing popular books, there are many of them, but they tend to be focused on a specific region or period of history. They tend to be quite empirical in the sense that they're, um, you know, they're grappling with uh, a particular phenomenon like Stonehenge or the ancient Celtic migrations. There haven't really been books coming out of my field which bring readers up to speed on 
just what we've been finding out over the last 30 or 40 years, which is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. And it was often a, a surprise to David, who after all, you know, his career is in a neighboring discipline. Yeah, I mean, some people even regard archaeology as a kind of branch of anthropology. Mm -hmm. And he was a very, very curious guy, a very widely read guy. And quite often I'd tell him about stuff and he'd go, I didn't have a clue about this because it just stayed locked up in the scientific journals. You know, there may be a fleeting headline here or there, but the work of synthesis, of pulling it together and just asking, what does all this new evidence do to some of our most entrenched, ingrained ideas about what our species is, what our capacities are as a species, and how looking at the past changes our understanding of those kinds of questions. And perhaps that's the gap I'm speculating here, but maybe the dawn of everything has, has walked into some of that void. It's a surprisingly cheerful book. And cheerful, I think, because it resists the temptation to suggest that there's an inevitability to the course of human history, uh, which, which, as you point out, some of these other books that, that came up, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, and, and even Sapiens, have this tendency to assume that technology mm. or some kind of uh, inevitable sequence of stages of history is a teleological force that's driving uh, you know, the society. Yeah. You get the sensation that our ancestors, they don't so much discover things as stumble into them. And then they spend thousands of years trying to figure out the consequences. That's, that's right. And it leaves us with a sense that we're sort of stuck. Um, mm. and I, it, it, it seems that part of why the dawn of everything is, is generating the response it is, is that it, it, it's kind of liberating. It says, wow, we're, we're, we're this playful species. Mm. The, 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 the history is so much more complex and variegated and than, than previously described. And also that it's not just material technologies. A lot of the book is about social experimentation, which I think we tend to regard as something special to us or, or you know, mm -hmm. relatively modern thing. But actually, in many ways, when you look at the broad sweep of history, and when you look at the, the evidence of archaeology and anthropology, um, we're actually rather less good at it than many of our ancestors seem to have been. I mean, what we consider to be radical um, really doesn't look that radical compared to the kind of things we can show happening in, in societies uh, going back over thousands of years. It's a wonderful thing to discover for, for, for at least for, the, for this reader and I think for many readers. Well, well, let's get into it, starting with big idea number one, it's time for a new history of humankind. In this book, we will not only be presenting a new history of humankind, but inviting the reader into a new science of history, one that restores our ancestors to their full humanity. Rather than asking how we ended up unequal, we will start by asking how it was that inequality became such an issue to begin with. Then gradually we will build up an alternative narrative that corresponds more closely to our current state of knowledge. If humans did not spend 95% of their evolutionary past in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers, what were they doing all that time? If agriculture and cities did not mean a plunge into hierarchy and domination, then what did they imply? 
What was really happening in those periods we usually see as marking the emergence of the state? The answers are often unexpected, and suggest that the course of human history may be less set in stone and more full of playful possibilities than we tend to assume. Okay, so you see our current understanding of the history of humankind as a myth. And we know it's a myth because it's it's too neat. Mm. It can be summed up in, in just a few <laughs> in just a few sentences. That's right. Can you share with us that 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 myth? I, I'm tempted to ask you to do it because I've done it so many times now. And of course, if it's true, anyone should be able to do it. Here we go. We started out in tiny bands of egalitarian hunter gatherers, and then something went terribly wrong, and look where we are today. And we, then we can debate the something. Was it the agricultural revolution? Was it the invention of cities? But that, that, that's basically it. I mean, as you say, it's, it's such a simple, it's what Claude Lévi-Strauss called it, like a mytheme, like a little bundle of things that <laughs> kind of sit in your head and um, you repeat them so often that, that, that you never really question them. You write, the world of hunter-gatherers, as it existed before the coming of agriculture, was one of bold social experiments resembling a carnival parade of political forms. I love, I love that. Uh, far more than it does the drab abstractions of evolutionary theory. So the, the reality, it was much more colorful. Yeah. I mean, you look at the, uh, the archaeological evidence of what human beings were up to uh, before the coming of, say, rice farming in uh, East Asia, or maize growing in the Americas, um, or wheat and barley in, in Eurasia. Wherever you look, you see an incredible range uh, of uh, not just experiments, but actually things that, that we wouldn't otherwise, I mean, if there wasn't direct archaeological evidence for these things, we'd never imagine that pre-agricultural peoples were getting together in their thousands to build enormous earthworks and great monumental centers uh, like uh, Poverty Point in uh, Louisiana uh, or the great stone monuments of Gebekli Tepe in the Middle East. These are just things that, that wouldn't really occur to us, but they're there in the archaeological evidence. You know, in Ice Age Europe, you have these uh, phenomenal burials of individuals going back tens of thousands of years before the invention of agriculture, where people's bodies are placed in these kind of, uh, they're almost like funerary dioramas with huge amounts of uh, uh, wealth and ornamentation and sophisticated, highly crafted objects and trade goods. All of this exuberance just gets flattened out in the conventional story, where we're told time and again that before the coming of agriculture, nothing much happened. In fact, what archaeology shows us today is that a huge number of different things happened, and many of those experiments will have involved uh, uh, institutions and beliefs that we generally think of as much more recent in time, including forms of private property, uh, hierarchy, probably even slavery. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. 
A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. You know, Jared Diamond called the agricultural revolution the worst mistake in the history of the human race. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, it's, you know, it obviously strikes a chord in many ways because you can go around the world sort of pointing the finger at at, at agriculture in various ways and saying, well, if we didn't do all these things, we'd be in a much better position. On the other hand, it's also clearly, you know, a very familiar basically biblical, you know, it's part of the Judeo-Christian tradition that there is this moment, which is kind of a fall from grace. Yeah. Uh, so it resonates as an idea. And, and I mean, that's the thing about powerful myths is that they're not actually divorced entirely from science and fact. In, in The two can blur into each other. And what really struck us, uh, David and I, as we got further into this project, which we originally conceived as being really about the roots of social inequality. And there was a lot of literature at that time. This was the decade directly after the financial crisis, 2008-9. A lot of books coming out about inequality. Each of them was very rigorous and each of them had its own take, but they all have a structure, a kind of narrative underpinning them. And the narrative doesn't really change. And and it's that same story about how once upon a time, everything was different. Then something happened technologically to change all of that, and nothing could ever work the same way again. So we get this picture of humanity, um, you know, going through these very rare and occasional and, and wrenching transitions. And then essentially nothing much happens for thousands of years. If you take that seriously as an account of human history, particularly in the present day when, by general consent, we do need to make some changes to our our cultural system just to remain on the planet, it's a fairly disheartening message. That in itself is not a reason to reject it, but when you begin to see that actually there's really nothing underpinning it, you know, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, then I think you have a case to say, well, hold on, why do we keep repeating this stuff, you know? And and so you write that there was, in fact, no switch from Paleolithic forager to Neolithic farmer. The transition from living mainly on wild resources to a life based on food production took something in the order of 3,000 years. And while agriculture allowed for the possibility of more unequal concentrations of wealth, in most cases, this only began to happen millennia after its inception. Yeah, this this is not controversial in my field. You know, if I'm sitting now on the sixth floor of the largest archaeology institute in in Western Europe, and if you go three flights of stairs down, you'll be in our archaeobotany labs, where there's a very brilliant, dedicated group of people who just study the f- the, the flora, the ancient seed remains, and other plant remains excavated from archaeological sites all over the world. And we now have a pretty good handle on the uh, the biology and the genetics of early plant domestication and early animal domestication. And it just doesn't fit this idea at all of once upon a time we were Paleolithic foragers and then everything changed. It's a much more interesting, but also more complex, not complicated, but complex story with a lot of regional variability. And it's a much slower story, um, what you say about thousands of years is is exactly right. People are clearly taking the measure 
of farming and agriculture for very long periods of time and for various reasons deciding not to go the full way with it. There's a technical term in, in the anthropological literature, uh, low-level food production. In, in the book we, we talk about play farming because uh, it's just a bit friendlier, but it's basically the same idea of people adopting elements of farming perhaps combining it with hunting, fishing, and foraging can do that for centuries, taking up agriculture and then deciding to drop it again. That happens. There are, there are numerous documented uh, cases. What we certainly don't have anymore is that simple picture of a, a kind of linear progression with one set of social consequences. And particularly this idea that agriculture somehow inexorably gives rise to higher rates of inequality or makes it harder to return to a, a pre-existing egalitarian condition, there's really no reason to think that. I mean, quite aside from the archaeology, there are many examples in history of agrarian societies that were highly egalitarian and didn't have systems of private property. If you look at South Asia or the Middle East, before the British showed up and imposed systems of private property and land enclosure in order to tax them, what you usually find in rural areas is something much more fluid, much more collective, perhaps based on uh, what are sometimes called systems of usufruct, where nobody actually owns the land, but people have different rights in different parts of it and its products. And one of the reasons that it seems there was this multi-thousand-year sort of flirtation with farming or dabbling in farming, play farming, as you say, is that people preferred the foraging lifestyle, it seems, right? And when presented with both lifestyles, uh, it, it, it seemed to be the better choice. But playing the contrarian, isn't there some inflection point at which you know, the population density can no longer, uh, that we, one just requires more land, right, to, to, to hunt and forage. And like clearly today, there's no going back, right? Um, yeah, you could, you could not sustain modern population levels um, without the, the kinds of systems yeah. of food production that we have. The question is how you organize those systems, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but, but was there not in some regions an inflection point where there was no going back simply because of a, a pop a population densities and and also then you have these armies made possible by by those population densities and food surpluses i mean is there some point at which the kind of one way street factor kicks in well except the armies would have been there before in many cases i mean the you know it's this idea slightly paradoxical idea that adopting agriculture gave us the freedom to do other things, right? That before that, we were so busy casting around looking for food and berries and nuts all the time that we didn't have time to have armies or invent writing or philosophy or civilization. This is, this is an inherently strange idea. I mean, if you look at uh, interviews that have been done with modern hunter-gatherers, they'll often look with pity at agriculturalists because they're just working all the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's really yeah, hard yeah. work, if you, as you know, if yeah. you've ever done any farming. It doesn't yeah. actually leave you much time for anything. The idea that agriculture somehow liberated us to explore all these other possibilities doesn't really make much sense, it's not very logical. And again, it, it doesn't really fit the picture of, of what actually happened. Do you, have, having spent so many decades studying and thinking about, no doubt, the lives of, of, of these people who lived in pre-farming days. Mm. Do you have a sense of, of personal 
nostalgia for those days. And and, and if you had a time machine, <laughs> where would you take it? No, I, I confess I've never wanted to be a hunter-gatherer. And I, <laughs> part of the reason for that, and as we go, we talk about in the book, is that many hunter, uh, hunter-gatherer uh, civilizations were really much more like... Um, like ours, then um, we might want to admit, you know, we, we talk about the history of indigenous uh, societies on the west coast of the, the Americas, California, and up to the northwest coast, which include societies that traditionally were highly ranked into aristocrats or nobles, commoners, and, and hereditary slaves. And then down in, in California, you have a long history of societies that were very oriented around wealth and, and money, which were also hunter-gatherers. So, you know, even the idea of, of uh, the hunter-gatherer as a thing, as a category, is really um, a bit odd. And it's, it's worth asking the question, I think, how we ever came to divide human history up in that way, according to modes of livelihood or modes of food production. This isn't something you can find forever in the annals of history. It's something that comes in to European history and philosophy at a very specific point in time. Well, in the absence of a choice to uh, to join a, a prior society, how about, how about a vacation, David? If you were to take a, if, if I gave you a time machine, you could choose your, your date and your place, and you can spend a week with one of the cultures that, 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 you, that you bring to life in your book, where, where would you go? I would just want to spend a week in one of these early Ukrainian cities, which go mm. back uh, about 5,000 uh, or more years, where somehow they found a system, a way for people to live together in their many, many thousands, most archaeologists would say tens of thousands, for long periods of time without apparently having any kind of central organization or hierarchy. And they were clearly having quite a lot of fun too, because the, the, the material remains of, of domestic life and of family life in these, uh, these early uh, Eastern European cities are, are beautiful. I mean, they're incredible artistic creations, particularly in, in pottery and terracotta, just because it survives. But, you know, imagine what they were doing with fabrics mm, and fibers. Sure. Um, it's almost like some magnificent, massive artist's colony. And wouldn't you like to go back and just see, you know, how did they pull that off? I mean, these settlements in one form or another were around for about seven or eight centuries. So they had something figured out there that is very, very difficult for us today to grasp. And yeah, I would love to, uh, to spend a few hours in a, whatever it was, an assembly or a council meeting in one of those local neighborhoods, just finding out how it all worked. Yes. And I think I remember that in Nebolivka, the, I think they, mm -hmm. they found ruins with, with households that were clustered together in groups of yeah. half dozen or more families with a common assembly house. That's right. Uh, and, and there's a sense of sort of, uh, of communal living and, and, and very comfortable uh, communal living. Mm -hmm. uh, we have this great variety of forms of social organization in early cities, but we also have these communities that shift seasonally between one mm. form of social organization and another. I found this absolutely fascinating. 
Isn't it interesting? Uh, there was even one example of a, a, a group that actually uh, assumed different names. Yeah. Right? During the hunting season. Was it the Kwaki Atoll? Yeah, they're, they're still around. They're, these are very much living people and, and societies, uh, in this particular case, on the, uh, the northwest coast down from Alaska. You have uh, societies who historically before and still in the early phases of, of European expansion, they switched their societies around on a, a seasonal basis. In that particular area, a lot of it was to do with fishing and the annual seasonal fish runs. So they would move from the coast further inland at particular times of year. And the coastal sites, you would have these uh, great settlements with uh, big timber, wooden houses, totem poles, very ranked and hierarchical. And you would have these incredibly intense seasons of festivities and, and theatrical uh, ceremonies and, and performances in which people would take on roles. And in the course of moving, they would change their, their social structure as well. And as you say, even take on different identities. I mean, the whole region there is famous for its art and particularly its traditions of masking. It was very much a culture that, that uh, explored the possibilities of costume, role-playing and spirituality and trickery. And yes, people would actually take on different identities in different seasons, become literally different people. And I love this observation that when you have temporary authority, you don't want to overplay your hand, <laughs> right? Because this, in another six right. months, you, you may be in a different position. And, and you all go on to point out that, that there are many examples, there are echoes of this throughout human history, this tendency to have festivals and occasions when mm. the social orders turned upside down. And that all of this, you speculate, was part of a kind of playfulness around imagining different forms of social organization. Yeah. The self-conscious aspect of that flipping, often between hierarchical and egalitarian forms, that alternation is very, very clear. People know what they're doing, which also means they can imagine what it might be like to just live in one kind of society all the time. I, I love your observation that we've traded play chiefs and real freedoms uh -huh. for real chiefs and play freedoms. <laughs> right. we'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But before that, we, sh we should uh, get into big idea number two. It's time to look past the myths. For far too long, we have been generating myths. As a result, we've been mostly asking the wrong questions. Were our earliest ancestors simple and egalitarian, or complex and stratified? Is human nature innocent or corrupt? Are we as a species inherently cooperative or competitive, kind or selfish, good or evil? Perhaps all these questions blind us to what really makes us human in the first place, which is our capacity as moral and social beings to negotiate between such alternatives. We do not have to choose anymore between an egalitarian or hierarchical start to the human story. Let us bid farewell to the childhood of man and acknowledge that our early ancestors were not just our cognitive equals, but our intellectual peers too. Likely as not, they grappled with the paradoxes of social order and creativity just as much as we do and understood them just as much, which also means just as little. 
if there is a riddle here, it's this. Why, after millennia of constructing and disassembling forms of hierarchy, did Homo sapiens, supposedly the wisest of apes, allow permanent and intractable systems of inequality to take root? If there's a star protagonist in the dawn of everything, it's Kandirak. Can you tell us his story? Yeah, I can tell you uh, a little of what I know, which is that he was a very famous member of the, the Huron-Wendat nation. Uh, he lived in the 17th century, and um, he actually died almost uh, immediately after signing being one of the signatories of the, the Peace of Montreal, the Great mm. Peace of Montreal in 1701. But he was uh, an individual who was famous as a, a warrior and as a diplomat who was deeply embroiled in uh, negotiations with English, French, Dutch, and, and other colonists in the region of uh, basically uh, the Great Lakes uh, here on Michigan. He was also widely uh, reputed to be not just a highly intelligent person, but an absolutely brilliant mind and a beautiful uh, speaker. He was the speaker of his nation. And as a result of that, he was actually uh, the honored guest frequently of the then French colonial governor of that region, who used to sort of bring him on for debates, uh, like a little sort of proto-enlightenment salon somewhere in the region of Montreal to entertain his uh, his French officers with the, the wit and the, the exuberance of this man's conversation. He also um, is the basis for a fictional character by the name of Adario, who appears in one of these dialogues, which became very, very fashionable in Europe in the Age of Enlightenment, in the early and middle 18th century. People would write these dialogues with a savage, dialogues with an uh, exotic uh, interlocutor. And the role of the exotic uh, person, whether it was a, a he or a she, would be to kind of reflect back on European civilization and often criticize European uh, uh, society and culture in ways that would have been difficult for Europeans themselves to do at that time. You get into trouble with the church or the state. Sure. The difference about Adario is that the writer who created him was actually uh, a French colonist who lived in the Great Lakes region, learnt to speak at least two of the, uh, the local native languages and dialects, and who we know was uh, familiar with Kandiaronk, met Kandiaronk, attended uh, some of these meetings, um, and then wrote down together with the French uh, colonial governor at the time, a man called Frontignac, who offered to help him, wrote down much of what he remembered. And, and much of it is this kind of scathing criticism uh, of what Kandiaronk and many other indigenous intellectuals and indigenous observers made of European societies at the time. The difficulty comes with what to do 
with those texts, those dialogues. Many historians treat them as purely fictional creations. But one thing that we try to show in The Dawn of Everything is that many of the criticisms voiced by Kandiaronk of European civilization are completely consistent with other reports that we have, for example, from Jesuit missionaries about what local native people would say about the French, for example. So actually, if you take the trouble to find out a bit about what we know about the history of Iroquois-speaking people and nations at that time, much of it is highly consistent with what we find in the, uh, the dialogues with Adario. And, and as you say in the book, not only were these Native American leaders and, and people more broadly are cognitive equals, but they were our intellectual equals. It, it's so different from the, the, the version of history that we grew up with. And this idea that you had these extraordinarily eloquent and compelling orators among these Native Americans, I, I love, uh, and, and it, it, it was Lahontan, uh, I think, who, who penned this, this dialogue, Curious Dialogues with a Savage, a Good Sense Who Has Traveled. I love these titles. And and one of them, just, just to give one example for our listeners, was that uh, Kandi Arag uh, makes this argument about the the Christian God that all, 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 the, all the Frenchmen uh, mm -hmm. bow down to and said, if it were possible that God had lowered his standards sufficiently to come down to earth, wouldn't he have done it in full view of everyone? Wouldn't he have gone from nation to nation performing mighty miracles, thus giving everyone the same laws? Then we would all have exactly the same religion. Instead, there are five or 600 religions, each distinct from each other. <laughs> well, what's so interesting is that it's actually the indigenous interlocutor who takes the role of the kind of rational skeptic. You know? Exactly. <laughs> this, this, right. is meant, this is meant to be the origins for us. You know, we, th we think this begins with Europeans going around the world, looking at all these strange tribes and saying, oh my God, you guys are so weird and exotic. But actually, you know, if, if Clifford Gitts and all those guys were right about the anthropological gaze, you know, the Western gaze, which is meant to be this kind of uh, skeptical, rational take on life, uh, wouldn't it be funny and deeply ironic if it actually originates with indigenous people looking at these peculiar Europeans with their bizarre systems of religion and hierarchy and going, you guys are really, really strange. <laughs> right. No, it, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily incendiary suggestion, which I think uh, you all, uh, I think, coined the phrase the indigenous critique, right? Yeah. And it's not, it's not over. I mean, you have to just look at what's been going on at the climate summit that we had mm -hmm. in, in Scotland just recently. And the, the prevalence of, of indigenous perspectives and voices on, on what's happening to uh, their environments. And of course, those are not the voices in the conference. Those are the voices on the street outside the conference. So we're still not listening. And, and the, you know, the extraordinary suggestion here is that it was this kind of feedback, this dialogue with Native mm -hmm. Americans that helped plant a seed that contributed to enlightenment thinking, yeah. which, which to refresh our memories was, was, um, you know, the enlightenment, the 18th century, I think, I think Kant said the motto was have courage to use your own understanding. Mm. Uh, the, the thinking was let's use reason and logic and rationality to understand how the world works mm. and propose ways of improving it. I, I mean, the, the extraordinary suggestion is that it was in dialogue with these new uh, cultures of people 
who had who had more liberty, more freedom, and more open dialogue about ways of organizing humans uh, that resulted in this Enlightenment thinking that in turn resulted potentially in the French Revolution, the American Revolution. I mean, you have to look at the way that the history of the Enlightenment is usually written. It's usually written by people educated in European history, European languages, European civilization, they're likely to have a pretty firm grasp of the ancient world, which for them means Greece and Rome. And it's largely written as a history of people writing books, reading books, reading each other's books, writing a book about the book that somebody else wrote. And it's all about books, essentially, and often great men, uh, great, great thinkers, great individual figures. In fact, it shouldn't really be extraordinary to suggest that Europeans who, after all, at that time were highly mobile. I mean, there were Europeans going everywhere, marrying, trading, interacting with people everywhere from China to the Americas. The idea that they wouldn't have absorbed anything of intellectual or moral value from those encounters, that seems pretty extraordinary as a claim. And yet, when you make the apparently modest suggestion that actually encountering people for whom liberty and individual autonomy was not just an abstract concept or a theological concept, but was actually the basis of their social organization, whole social and cultural systems founded on these principles, the idea that that wouldn't have had some impact on European people, including intellectuals at the time, that in itself seems like a pretty extreme claim. And yet, when people suggest that, that knowledge could have flowed in that direction, mm -hmm. not just physical habits like, you know, we know that Europeans adopted uh, tobacco pipes at the same time, and the habit of sitting around having conversations while drinking uh, caffeinated beverages. Nobody questions that he, Europeans adopted these cultural habits. But the idea that there might have been some intellectual influence, or that we might have learned something of, of social value, can still provoke almost a, a kind of hysterical backlash in the academy. I've seen a bit of it myself over the last few weeks. <laughs> and you have to ask why is it still so difficult for so many historians to accept the idea, just as you said before, that these people that Europeans were encountering were people, and among them were some brilliant people who intellectually uh, were our equals, but also remember we're talking about either non-literate societies or societies that certainly didn't use writing for most of the things that Europeans used it for at the time. These are societies that were much more heavily invested in orality and spoken interaction for many of their legal traditions, their political customs. They had very, very highly uh, uh, developed cultures of debate and persuasion, which was actually the kind of logical consequence of not being able to uh, invade someone else's freedoms. You know, one of the things that really struck uh, indigenous societies in that region of, of the, the northeastern uh, woodlands region uh, of the Americas about Europeans is how they were constantly taking orders and obeying them yeah. on, you know, deferring to each other on the basis of rank and valuing each other in terms of property. It doesn't seem like there were any such mechanisms in these uh, native societies at the time, which if you think about the logical consequence of that, 
of uh, being able to give orders, but not being able to assume that anyone will obey you. The only logical alternative then is to actually talk people around, or as some of the Jesuit observers at the time put it, the chief only has power insofar as it is the power of his tongue, his power to persuade. So there really shouldn't be anything terribly surprising or shocking in the idea that Europeans encountering someone like Kandiaronk, who came directly out of that political and cultural milieu, would have been exactly what they described, deeply impressed and moved mm -hmm. uh, and motivated mm -hmm. by the sophistication of what they were hearing. The critical point you make here is that in these early encounters, it became, I'm quoting you here, it became clear to French observers that most indigenous Americans saw individual autonomy and freedom of action as consummate values, organizing their own lives in such a way to minimize any possibility of one human being becoming subordinated to the will of another. It is like you said before, uh, which I perhaps you you made it up or perhaps it's in the book is that you know they had re real freedoms and play chiefs yeah whereas yeah. we have uh, uh, play freedoms and real chiefs in other words um you know we we pride ourselves on living in a democracy but all you got to go and do is get a job and before you know it you're going to be scrambling around obeying orders all the time you know hierarchy is 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 there from the schoolroom onwards and we have to obey our chiefs because you know we find out pretty quickly what happens when we don't. Whereas the the societies we've been talking about in the Americas, uh, in that part of the Americas, they had chiefs too, um, but they they really didn't have that kind of coercive authority, and the freedoms were were very real. People. Um, were not allowed to uh, impinge on, on the autonomy of others, including women's freedoms. The, the Europeans, particularly the Jesuits, were scandalized by the fact that women could get divorced at will and had uh, sexual freedoms as well. Can we ever get back there? Is it possible to shrug off the hierarchies that are holding us down? After this short break, David shares his vision for a freer, more playful future. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to the show. David's first big idea is that the course of human history may be less set in stone and more full of playful possibilities than we tend to assume. His second big idea is that we need to abandon the myth that human history has been a straight march from egalitarian to hierarchical societies. 
Now, in his final big idea, he says the true history of civilization is only just starting to be written. On reflection, there is just something odd about the way we use the term civilization today. One problem is that we've come to assume that civilization refers in origin simply to the habit of living in cities. Cities, in turn, were thought to imply states. But as we've seen, this is not the case historically, or even etymologically. The word civilization derives from Latin civilis, which actually refers to those qualities of political wisdom and mutual aid that permit societies to organize themselves through voluntary coalition. If mutual aid, social cooperation, civic activism, hospitality, or simply caring for others are the kind of things that really go to make civilizations, then this true history of civilization is only just starting to be written. Well, you've you've said, David, that you did not write this book as an act of uh, of, of advocacy, but it, it's clearly a provocation. I think a well-timed provocation. It, it's interesting. A, a surprising number of my friends are taking very seriously right now the question of how we can better design mm -hmm. our society and even our just individual collective families, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And it, it feels to me like there are a few different factors at play. You know, one is that there's a sort of epidemic of loneliness that, that's been talked about, and this may be partly to do with the erosion of religion, and, and maybe because of the building of edge cities and the automobile, and the way that's impacted how we live. And we, we now know that humans live an extra decade longer if they're more connected mm. with other humans. This is a really core need that we have. We then have this increasingly preposterous concentration of wealth issue. We have this looming... Um, because of uh, artificial intelligence and roboticization, the prospect of mass loss of jobs in a cultural environment within which we're all uh, in Western society very much defined by the work we do. So this is sort of th threatens our dignity. Meanwhile, we have China defying what we thought was the inevitability that, that capitalism begets democracy. You know, people are talking about using blockchain to create new systems of governance. <laughs> right? mm. uh, Elon Musk is talking about the benefits of direct democracy on Mars uh, <laughs> when he sets that up. So you, you make it all sound quite exciting, actually. <laughs> I think the, the prevailing sense that, that I get from a lot of people is is the opposite. You know, it's oh, the sense of being being kind of stuck. I mean, it's interesting that you, you you made the point about these rates of inequality. We hear a lot about the rates, you know, we hear a lot about a lot of numbers, we hear a lot of figures, mm -hmm. a certain percentage of the world's population control some huge proportion of the world's wealth, and the metrics get better and better and more accurate and more accurate. But it's almost as if the the more we're able to measure these things, the less we're able to actually do anything about them. or or think about doing anything more uh, dramatic than, you know, maybe just slightly bringing them down a little bit, but not actually questioning the underlying logic, uh, the underlying system that produces those inequalities in the first place. The quality of political discourse uh, seems to have eroded to, to the point that even when you're confronted with these really, really stark figures, there's just this sense that it was all inevitable. And yeah, fair enough. This definitely got our goat when we started seeing 
colleagues of ours in our fields of his ancient history, archaeology, getting on board with this kind of uh, idea that that uh, you know it not only is it all inevitable, but it's somehow rooted in human evolution and human social evolution. That it's all somehow a natural consequence of processes going back thousands and thousands of thousands of years. And lo and behold, you know when you scrape the surface, what's underpinning that idea? Well, it's the same old stories and fables that were being told hundreds of years ago, back in the days of the Enlightenment, by people who didn't want to listen to uh, what we've called the indigenous critique or other critiques uh, of the, the cultural system that, that was taking form at that time. The question of equality versus freedom comes up quite a bit in the book. And, and you say that you felt the need to come up with your own more neutral list of baseline human freedoms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, do, do you want to speak a little bit about, about what those yes. are and, and, and what you think, what this might look like? I mean, how, what, what can we do to, to, to get unstuck? Well, the word, the word freedom, we've, we've heard it a lot, right. In, in, in the last few years and, and in, in pandemic times, we hear a lot about freedoms, but they're very often personal freedoms, individual freedoms, they're not really social freedoms. Uh, the idea that you can exert uh, your personal freedoms without taking any account of other people is, uh, you know, it's a kind of freedom that it very quickly shades into domination. I mean, you're basically forcing whoever's sitting next to you to live with your decision. So the, you know, again, the quality of, of discourse, what, what do we mean by freedom? Is it just this kind of abstract principle like, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity? What do these words mean in practice? Where do we actually see them enacted in our lives? And in the book, we look at examples of societies that had real freedoms, the kind you could actually put into practice, societies where people were not trained into obedience. And three particular things came into focus. The first is to do with mobility, simply the, the freedom to decide that you don't like where you are and to move away and escape your surroundings in the expectation. Again, this is not a purely individual freedom because it's always in the expectation that at your point of destination, somebody will take you in and receive you. We talk about um, these clan systems that existed in different parts of the world. There are examples in Oceania, in North America, where people could leave their homes and their families and move over very long distances, hundreds of miles, in the full knowledge that a co-member of their clan would take them in, adopt them, make them part of their family. And this is borne out in the archaeological evidence too. You know, what you get before the, uh, the appearance of cities are not these isolated little bands of human beings. You get these great, we ended up calling them sort of hospitality zones, these networks of, of small societies that people seem to have been very free to move between them, which implies that they're being received, they're being mm -hmm. taken in, mm -hmm. they're intermarrying, whatever it may be. So this freedom to move away and, and start a new life somewhere else. The second basic freedom is something we've already touched on in our conversation, is, is simply the freedom to disobey arbitrary commands, again, with an expectation that you won't be 
excluded or ostracized or killed or imprisoned, but but will be listened to, debated. This was the the basis of those um, cultures of, of discussion and debate uh, that we talked about um, earlier and participatory forms of democracy. And the third basic freedom we identify very much based on the first two is the, the freedom to just reimagine and remake one's society in a, a different form. And what we suggest is that that kind of freedom, which I guess is epitomized in those kind of seasonal alternations that we mm -hmm, talked about. Mm -hmm. It's a very extreme example of people who construct one kind of society at one time of year, and then uh, on a routine basis, just kind of disassemble it, take it apart, put it back together in some different form, and then do it again, and do it again, and do it again. It's an extreme example, but the basic principle uh, we feel, um, if human civilizations have lost something, you know, if there is something to be nostalgic about or sort of hark back to, it's not equality, it's not living in a, a society of equals because there's no particular reason to think that that ever happened. It's precisely that ability to reconceptualize uh, uh, society itself and collectively to decide to do things differently. That's what we seem to have lost. These acts of, of, of playing with, with alternative forms of social organization, I, I think of Burning Man uh, as, mm. as, one, as one sort of act of collective play, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which a huge oversight, David, I've never been to it, but, <laughs> but I, intend to, I, neither. I intend to go. If you want to go next year, I'm in. I'd like to go. Is it happening next year? I don't know. I don't know, but if, if, if it does. But we think of these as just sort of fun festivals, but, uh, but I think you might make the case, perhaps, that when people self-organize for a couple of weeks, uh, and that proves to work for tens of thousands of people or more, that we should take these moments somewhat seriously as experiments that could be expanded upon. Well, it's, it's, it's obviously something that my co-author, David Graeber, had a huge amount of experience with, because yes. unlike me, he was a practical activist. He'd, he'd played a role in, in Occupy and the global justice movement, where yep. people were debating exactly these kinds of issues. And actually, one of the things he talked to me a lot about when we started uh, uh, writing and thinking together was exactly how often people would object, uh, would come up with the objection, even people who were sympathetic to, to what was going on with Occupy would come back with the objection that it could never work on a large scale. So clearly it's of interest to be able to document, um, for example, we talked earlier about those early Ukrainian cities, examples in history of societies that do actually manage to organize without steep hierarchies on a large scale. It does have a contemporary significance. It does have a political significance. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, it's it's a truism. You, you teach your students in, in, in the first year of an archaeology or a history degree that if you think you can write history from some sort of elevated, completely neutral, objective standpoint, you're in cloud cuckoo land. We all have to be aware of, of our context, and it's, it's out of that context that certain questions arise, and you go to the data with those questions. You know, uh, this reminds me of some of the reviews of the book I've read that refer to you and David as anarchists. And and popular culture is not oh, especially kind to anarchists. 
Uh, the word conjures up piercings and tattoos, and uh, but then I look at the author photos uh, on your book jacket, and it's two guys in <laughs> two guys in collared shirts. Uh, so I have to ask you: Are, are, are you are you David? What an were anarchist? you expecting? <laughs> I personally, and I, I suspect um, this this might be a good anarchist position. It's not for me to say, but I don't like pigeonholes. I don't like pigeonholing uh -huh. people. I don't like sticking labels on people. Maybe that makes me a good anarchist, but that would be a kind of self-defeating argument, wouldn't it? <laughs> well played. Um, in the last paragraph of the book, you talk about participatory democracy as natural, uh, something we've conceived of as natural in small groups, but something mm. that cannot possibly scale up to anything like a city or a nation state. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is something, this is a perception that, that you're rectifying in the book. Do you see more participatory democracy as uh, part of the direction in which we need to head? I, I, I know you've avoided specific prescriptions in, mm -hmm, in, the, mm -hmm. in, in this book itself, but on a personal yeah. level, where, where do you see, what, what kind of aspects of our contemporary society do you think need to change in, in our form of governance? I think you can already see examples going on all over the world of, of people doing this. The, the one that's closest to home for me uh, some of the initiatives happening around climate change, mm -hmm. which is such a long-term issue, but at the same time impinges so much on the local and, and small decisions people have to make about how to heat their homes and how to light their streets, whatever it may be. And there's already lots of examples of people taking those decision-making processes out of the short term cycle of political elections, where it's politicians doing the talking, politicians who are thinking about their next uh, uh, electoral race and who's going to mm -hmm, vote for them, mm -hmm. taking it out of those short term cycles and putting it in the hands of local assemblies, which are selected much like people do jury service on a, a random basis so that you get a cross section of the population. It's not just one interest group. And it takes a lot of time and people have to sit around talking, debating, disagreeing, but ultimately trying to arrive at some kind of consensus. It's just one example, but I'm sure there are many, many more. One thing I've noticed in, in business is I've I've moved you know uh, building some you know you know small digital media companies in the last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. I've moved to more of this approach of persuading people rather than rather than sort of top down you know um, decision making. So I have a friend who's a pretty senior guy at Google who, who who was interested to learn when he joined the company that the the cultural expectation is that it is incumbent upon the leader of each team to persuade the team uh, that his or her opinion or direction mm. is the right one. That there's uh -huh. not, you don't, you don't just sort of, you know, instruct everyone because of your position of authority to, to follow a certain path. And I, I think there's been a movement in business anyway, I don't know as much in our governance towards this, these sort of mm. somewhat more egalitarian Mm -hmm. uh, approach to how one goes about making decisions. There's greater there's greater respect for the the views of of, of interns and you know younger members of the team, uh, and and that one has to one has to persuade uh, much as 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 uh, Kandi Rank might have done. Well, you're reminding me. There's um, 
a debate, quite a famous debate that took place between David Graeber and uh, what's his name, the guy who invented PayPal, Thiel, right? Oh yes, Peter Thiel. Yeah, Peter Thiel. And uh, I watched it actually the other week um, for the first time, and it's fascinating. And there's a point in the conversation where Thiel says something along the lines of, um, "Well, I'm." You know, he's kind of agreeing with David about the need to do away with some of these dogmas about what does and doesn't work in groups of various sizes. But then he puts the question to David. He says, "All right, but your kind of decentralized uh, uh, way of organizing things could that get people to the moon? Could that cure cancer? Could that give us mobile phones? You know, give me some examples of of decentralized organization that have actually done anything, like you know, in, in terms of." Technology or, or yeah, cultural, yeah. etc. Could you do the Manhattan Project? Could you build a? Could you do Apollo? Could you get someone to the moon in a radically decentralized, chaotic system? Or do you need well, it's not coordination and chaotic, planning? Decentralized. Um, um, yes, you do need coordination and planning. Frankly, I don't think that that creating very large-scale but fundamentally democratic structures historically is that hard. I think it's really hard to create tiny structures that are democratic. You know, you can get very large structures that work that way and coordinate things. What you don't get so much are egalitarian families. You know, small-scale structures. That's what's actually much, much trickier. And then you can see sort of David's brain whizzing around, and then the conversation turns to something else. And it occurred to me that ten <laughs>、uh, years later or whatever, the answer in the dawn of everything is well, yeah, most of human history <laughs> was done that way. Most、right. of the great technological discoveries of human history were not done with some guy on top telling everybody directly underneath him to tell those other guys what to do. It's just not true. So it's one of those questions that, when you're confronted with it in the present moment, your mind goes blank, and you think, "Oh, could we really do it?" But、yeah. it's actually one of those cases where big history, or taking the broad sweep of history, actually doesn't make you feel small and insignificant. It actually makes you realize, yeah, people have done incredible things in different ways. They've created systems of navigation that got our species to、mm. Australia.、Mm, you know, extraordinary. Yeah, <laughs> they, they've created yeah. cities、uh, without locking themselves into these rigidly hierarchical command structures and systems of management. So, in in a way, I, you know, one could argue. That one strand of our book is a very, very long answer to Peter Thiel's question. Well, I love this question that you ask in the book. What if we treat people from the beginning as imaginative, intelligent, playful creatures who deserve to be understood as such? What a radical suggestion! Huh? <laughs> What a radical suggestion! Only an anarchist could possibly conceive of anything so crazy. Well, I, I think the rehabilitation of of Candy Aronk. As this, as the incredibly compelling historical figure that he was,、um, is is a wonderful piece of this. And I have to think right now somebody's pitching a movie based on Candy Aronka's protagonist, and I think it should open、uh, with Lahontan penniless in Amsterdam. Oh, we thought this through, <laughs> drafting this through.、Uh, I mean, I, 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 maybe one of our listeners will run with that and, and engage you as a who would you a, who, who would you cast as Lahontan? Oh boy, what a, what a field day!、Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I leave that to you. I'm going to ask you a, who you'd cast as Candirong because that's an incendiary question. Yes, well, it, it's a, it, both great roles, and I, I don't know. I have a hunch this 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 may come to pass. David, this、uh, this book was meant to be the first in a series of four 
Um, now, sadly, you, you've lost your your co-author and your dialogic sparring partner. Have you given any thought to whether you'll you'll continue the project? No, because I, I'm very conscious of not being in a place right now where I can make a, a decision about that. Um, I'm really um, just trying to to keep up with the overwhelming power of the response to this book, which every so often, actually very often, on a, on a almost daily basis, I see a response to the book that sets me off on a certain train of thought. And if I had a month locked up in a library, I could probably follow that train of thought. Yeah, but what I, what yeah. I try to do, and I don't, um, but, what I, um, but what I try to do is just collect uh, ideas that that seem important to me at the time stop them from running away. Uh, much as David and I basically started creating an archive, when we'd have a conversation and something interesting came out. One of us would write it down. It would go into the archive and it would stay there. And I, I'm basically still doing that. And and maybe over time, certain things will come into focus that I feel I can. Uh, uh, cope with and and explore either by myself or with other collaborators. But uh, no, I'm I'm not really at the point of uh, making any decisions about that. Well, I I, ho I hope you are planning to visit some of the beautiful places you describe in the book. I think I've heard you say that, that yeah. that's that's something you aspire to do. Very much so. Um, and, and after you do, we, we hope you'll come back and tell us what you learn. We've so enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you, David, for taking time out of your teaching and writing and archaeological excavations to, to be with us today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Would you like to hear two more big ideas from the dawn of everything? Or maybe you'd like a 12-minute version of the book directly from David Wengro that you can share with friends. Download the Next Big Idea app and check out David's Bookbite. And don't stop there. In our app, you can also find beautiful audio and video e-courses, conversations with our curators, and audio summaries of new and classic books, a new one every single day. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to listen to our conversation with Rutger Bregman called Humankind, Finding Hope in Human History, or our conversation with Lydia Denworth about the evolution of friendship, or with Christopher Ryan about what we can learn from our hunter-gatherer ancestors, three of my favorite episodes. You can find links in the show notes. And if you like the next big idea in general, please leave us a review at a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. It really helps us out. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, the Next Big Idea app, or wherever you're listening right now. Many thanks to David Wengro and the late David Graber for this brilliant book. This episode was written and produced by the highly evolved Caleb Bissinger, his sniper humor notwithstanding. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnad. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Don't you think, David, this would be a great movie? <laughs> Um, I, I can imagine it, I can imagine about a zillion ways it could be done really badly. And then <laughs> there's, pro and there's probably one or two ways in which it could be an amazing movie. Well, I, I think Lahontan is also such a fascinating character, isn't he? I mean, you just imagine. I was thinking Brad Pitt for Lahontan. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. That, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, or DiCaprio, uh, maybe.
Yes, I, I, I could, I could, I could absolutely see DiCaprio. Uh, I mean, I mean, either of them would be lucky to get get that role. It's a wonderful <laughs> be a fun role. role. 